0: We've been preaching through creation and new creation here at the table. We started with many weeks of orienting ourselves in the story of God's creation. And now we're spending several weeks, many weeks, orienting us around the end of the story of new creation. And today, um, we're paying particular attention. Last week was the resurrection of the body. And that is our hope as those of us who are found in Jesus. And today we're talking about hell. So if this is your first time at the table, welcome. <laughs> um, and I'll say this about six times during my message, but I want to say it right up front now. We do a Tuesday evening teaching on the message. You can get that link through our email list or group me. If you're not signed up to that, come talk to me and I can sign you up. There, is a, there are about 18 hours of information that we won't be able to get to today. We could preach all year on unpacking and clarifying what's going on. And like even in Matthew 25. So, come Tuesday night if you have questions. Or if you don't hear something that you were expecting to hear or wanted to hear. Or maybe you heard something that helped or hindered you. But the good news today, friends. <clears throat> here's the good news. You ready? Gird up your ears. In a world where eternal punishment is preached... To scare the hell out of people. Today we declare Jesus did not come to scare the hell out of us, but to preach the heaven into us. God wants everyone to be saved. And what does the saving is his love. Hell is simply one way to describe the experience of those who have resisted and opposed God's love. So where are you resisting God's love today? Who do you know that needs your intercession to receive God's love today? One of my favorite shows on television right now is a show uh, from the UK called Black Mirror. Has anybody seen Black Mirror? Sci-fi? It deals with our relationship to technology in sort of the not-so-distant future. There's an episode called White... Bear. White Bear starts with a woman sitting in a chair. And there's like ringing in her ears and as she opens her eyes, like she's kind of waking up, her eyes are blurry. She sees this weird symbol on a TV in front of her and immediately within 30 seconds you know she's disoriented and terrified. She's walking around this house trying to, trying to get her bearings um, and you don't know quite what's going on but she sees this picture of a girl on the mantle and she's been having these flashbacks as she's trying to get oriented and this little girl seems in these flashbacks to be like her daughter, we think? So she picks up this picture and clutches it, puts it in her pocket and runs out of the house and she starts seeing people in in the apartment complex around her that are looking out the window at her. Some of them have their phones up like they're recording her or taking pictures of her and she shouts up to them, help me, I don't, I don't know who I am. I don't know where I am. I, I, and we get this picture that she's had amnesia. She's got, like, no, her bearings are all off. And she, as she's calling for help to these people, they ignore her. Or some of them kind of laugh or snicker at her, right? So she sees this person, like, looking at her around a fence, and she runs to go f- chase that person because she needs help. And as she rounds the fence, she sees uh, these men in, like, like um, Friday the 13th, Jason masks, you know what I'm talking about? Like the ski masks? And they have shotguns. And they start, they turn towards this woman with amnesia, and they start chasing her. And you hear gunshots, and so now she's terrified. She's not disoriented, she's terrified. She runs this gas station, and there's these people, like normal people, without cell phones and without shotguns, right? Which qualifies as normal in this world. And they're just like, they're just filling up their gas. And she's like, help me, help me, oh my gosh, these people, Whatever. And uh, she meets this person, her name's Jim, and Jim, uh, g- like, they run and take cover in this gas station while these people with shotguns are trying to get in. And as they're in the gas station, Jim is like, you don't, what do you mean you don't know what's going on? And this woman, he's just like, I don't know what's going on. And so Jim tells her, well, there was a signal put out on everybody's screen. And this, you, you realize, oh, this is a signal you saw right when she woke up, like this signal. And she said, Jim says, this signal did one of three things to people. It made people watchers, which means it just turned them into passive people that watch. So you start to make, okay, these are the people with the cell phones, ignoring this woman. Then there's the hunted, people who are being chased, and the hunters. People who haven't been turned into watchers, and now they just prey upon the weak and take whatever they want. And so as she's telling her this, like, you know, the woman with amnesia is still freaking out because she doesn't have any memory of this, and she's waking up in this horrible world. Well, the guy that Jim is with gets shot by the hunters, and so Jim and this woman, they jump in a van. This van pulls up, and this guy's like, get in. And there's uh, other crazy things that happen, and I won't tell you all these things for time's sake, but eventually Jim and the woman with amnesia end up at the television station where this signal's originated. Jim's plan is to, like, if we can turn off the signal, maybe the hunters and the watchers and the hunted, maybe we'll all go back to normal. So they get to the television station. They, they break in, and there's two hunters there with masks on and shotguns. And in this climactic moment, the woman with amnesia, like, grabs the shotgun, wrestles the shotgun away from the, hunt, the hunter, points it at the hunter, and, and you know, this, this guy's backing up, and she pulls the trigger... And confetti comes out of the gun. And like the woman with amnesia is like like just stunned. And all of a sudden, two of the hunters come and they grab her shoulders and they sit her in a chair and they spin the chair around and the walls of the television station open to a live studio audience. And everybody's cheering. And one of the characters from the show that we met earlier comes out. He's the MC. And we learn that the woman with amnesia, she's told, your name is Victoria Spillane. And news footage is playing behind her as we've told this. She and her fiancé kidnapped a little girl and tortured her and killed her. And we realize, oh, that's the little girl that this woman took to be her daughter. It's having flashbacks. Her fiance, they were both convicted. Her fiance committed suicide in prison. So Victoria, the lady with amnesia, stood trial and was convicted as guilty. And as, as Victoria's learning this, she's like terrified. She's, she's like um, horrified that, that she did, like, you know, it's clear. Like, she's just like, oh, this is, oh, no, 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 no. Then they're like, you know, showing all this news footage. And we learn that Victoria, as part of her sentence, she's been sentenced to undergo psychological torture daily at the White Bear Justice Park. Where visitors are allowed to record and watch her daily suffering. Victoria is then put in like this popemobile, paraded through the streets. She's still just distraught. She's shouting, just kill me, just, just kill me, just end this. And people are like taking her picture. She's taken back to the house where she originally wakes up. Everything is reset. The glass of water that she got out of the thing is put back. The picture she had grabbed off the mantle is replaced. She's put back in the chair. She's hooked up to this device that zaps her memory. And then it zaps her memory. The credits start. As the credits start, you see some of the characters, Jim and this other guy who are in the, sh- who are in the show, they're prepping the next onlookers, the next watchers on what to do and what not to do. You can't, you can't touch her. You can't talk to her, right? Don't intervene. Don't let her see your cell phone. And whatever you do, have fun. This is supposed to be fun right? And then the credits are rolling, and then you see snapshots of the next day as Victoria's waking up again, realizing she doesn't know who she is, trying to get help, running away from the hunters. And the sort of the brilliance of the show at the end, the way it's told, is you realize as you watch the credits, as you're watching this again, you are now part of the spectators at the, bear, the White Bear Justice Park. You are spectating on her torture. It's not really an episode of Full House is what I'm saying. (laughs) Justice in this white bear justice park is defined very particularly. Yeah? It's about torture, retribution, recompense, torment. In our vernacular, we would say, I think with one voice, that Victoria was experiencing a Living hell. Pipe down, Siri. In fact, this is a good picture, I think. This, this episode is a good picture of what a lot of um, us have received or grew up to think about hell is like. The ongoing, never-ending, conscious torment of the wicked. Anybody? Can I get a witness? Here's some, uh, here's some quotes from some theologians um, that encapsulate sort of the... This, this came to sort of hold our imaginations in the like, 13th, 14th, and then like 16th, 17th century. This is a couple quotes by Jonathan Edwards, who is one of the most recognized Puritan theologians, one of the central stalwarts of the of reformation Protestant Christianity. This is what he says. The sight of hell's torments will exalt the happiness of the saints forever. Can the believing father in heaven be happy with his unbelieving children in hell? I tell you, yes. Such will be his sense of justice that it will increase rather than diminish his bliss. Here's another one. When the saints in glory, therefore, shall see the doleful state of the damned, Victoria, how will this heighten their sense of the blessedness of their own state, so exceedingly different from it, when they shall see how miserable others are, who are naturally in the same circumstances with themselves, when they shall see the smoke of their torment and the raging of the flames of their burning and hear their dolorous screeches and cries and consider that they, in the meantime, are in the most blissful state and shall surely be in it for all eternity, how they will rejoice. This picture of hell, let's call it the... White Bear Justice Park picture. Um, is sort of populated by, and and epitomized by, um, some writings from this time. Uh, The first would be, Dante's Divine Comedy. Dante's Divine Comedy had three acts. The first one was called Inferno. You've heard of Dante's Inferno? Well, it was Inferno, and then Purgatorio, and then Paradiso. We get a lot of our imagery of hell, flames, people being burned for eternity, uh, demons laughing from this poem that was written in the 14th century. Another one is John Milton's Paradise, a poem written in the 17th century, Paradise Lost, which tells the story of Satan plotting to take down Adam and Eve with these pictures of hell. These are populated with these very uh, famous... And I would say, even numerous terms we get from Scripture eternal punishment, torment, lake of fire, unquenchable fire, worm doesn't die, fire is not quenched, weeping and gnashing of teeth. What do these images mean? Come Tuesday night. But, but White Bear, the White Bear episode confronted me with an issue. Not an issue I haven't had before, but it confronted me again with an issue. Why didn't I enjoy Victoria getting tortured? People who hold to this idea of hell—that I read from Jonathan Edwards—would say that um, the offense of God is so much greater than Victoria's offense to this little girl and her family. That our bliss at the torture of people in hell for eternity will be that much greater, because of how much they deserve that. Right? So there's just like it's not—it's not equal. But there should be some part of me, if this is true that rejoices in watching the wicked get tortured. I don't. In fact, it tormented me to watch that kind of justice be played out on the screen. So does this mean I'm a bad Christian? Where do our notions of justice come from? And what does justice look like In God's economy. Well, today, friends, in a world of white bear justice, we proclaim that Jesus did not come preaching eternal punishment to scare the hell out of people. He came preaching love to get the heaven into people. God wants everyone to be saved by His love. And hell is one way to describe how people experience God's love when they resist and oppose it. Let's turn to Matthew 25. And let me just say this. For something that's dominated our religious landscape for so long, it's surprising how little hell is actually talked about in Scripture. Do you know that the Apostle Paul never uses the word hell? Ever? In any of his letters? The Acts, the apostles in Acts, when they are proclaiming the good news of the kingdom throughout all the world, right? All their sermons, if you look at all their sermons, guess how many times they mention hell? You can count on one hand. Zero. Even when Paul preaches to all pagans in Acts 17, read that sermon again, he never mentions it. He doesn't even come close to alluding to it. The early church, Paul and the apostles didn't use hell as an evangelistic strategy or a discipleship motivation. In fact, the word hell, our word hell, doesn't even come into use until the ninth century. So, again, Tuesday night, our word hell is a translation of one Hebrew word and three, four, three, three Greek words. The Hebrew word Sheol, and the Greek word Hades, Tartarus, which is kind of fun to say, and Gehenna, which is a Greek transliteration of the Hebrew Ben-Hinnom, which is the Valley of Hinnom, which is what we read about in Jeremiah, where children were sacrificed to false gods. All right, Tuesday night. But Matthew 25, notice this text isn't even really about hell. <laughs> and let me show you why. This is the sheep and the goats passage, right? When the Son of Man comes in all his glory, Father will separate people, sheep and goats, right and left. Notice the sheep are sort of the people of God here. The goats are uh, the scapegoats. <laughs> They're the nations, I guess you could say. But notice that this, this text is primarily concerned with how did you treat the least of these, my brothers and sisters. Jesus um, says how you've treated these people is how you treat me. So notice here, we see this a lot. Saul, Saul, why did you persecute me? Right? Uh, Jesus seems to have this notion that the body of Christ, you and me, people, in this room, that... um, that we have, he has so conferred on us his identity and authority that, that we are him together. We are his body. So this text is primarily about Christ's body and how we relate to one another and, and Jesus says that has eternal consequences. So this is about ecclesiology. The church isn't made up of a bunch of individuals who've prayed a prayer. The church is made up of Christ's body and how we treat each other really, really, really matters. Really, really matters. This is one of the reasons why we spent the last two days as a church on retreat talking about here's who I am, here's how you can care for me. We weren't navel-gazing, right? We were basically saying here is my deepest weakness, here's my greatest gift, will you care for me and let me care for you? Why? Because eternity depends upon it. How we treat the least of these. How we treat each other. The nations here, the goats, they're judged on how they receive the gospel and the kingdom. And reception is, what does Jesus say? Like feeding, giving drink, right? Clothing. This is hospitality, generosity, compassion, kindness. Notice that these missionaries are going in weakness. These people who are sent to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, they're going in weakness. They actually do need clothes and things to drink because they they aren't fully funded when they get on the mission field. (laughs) They actually go in weakness because that's what it means to go as Christ comes. Notice how different, and this is all through scripture, friends, all through the gospels. Notice how different that is from the colonial imperialism of a lot of Christian missions, which is we're here, with our six-figure budgets to teach you whatever you need, you're welcome. So to be as scandalous as I possibly can, because you all know I like to do that, this text is less about hell and how to get there and what happens there, and more about that judgment, we could call it final judgment, is based on how we treat oppressed minorities when they come to us in lack or need. Let me say that again. This text is about how people treat oppressed minorities who come giving good news and how we respond to them in their lack or need, which which lines up with lots of other Jewish writings around this time. The judgment is based upon your hospitality, generosity, kindness, Compassion on those who are the poor. Notice that judgment is not based upon a prayer prayed or not. This would be a perfect time for Jesus to say, here's the prayer you pray, and we're going to ask you that too. Notice how this text doesn't really comport with our understandings of how do you get saved in a 21st century Christian context. We're worried about people thinking their good works will somehow save them. Jesus worried about just do the good works for crying out loud. Why? Not because Jesus is into like, oh, you're gonna work your way to heaven. No, because he knows the only evidence that you've actually received the love of God is that you actually love other people. Jesus didn't come preaching eternal punishment to scare the hell out of people. He came preaching the good news of God's love so that they could, so the heaven could get in people. And the evidence of that is that we would love like God does. That's the evidence. God wants everyone to be saved by his love. Hell is a word we use to describe the experience of someone who has persistently resisted and opposed God's love in their life. Where are you resisting God's love today? Who do you know that needs you to intercede for them? So that they can receive God's love today. So let's get to the juicy parts, the good stuff. Verse forty-one. So after we so let me just back up. Matthew, okay, real quick. Who? Yeah, Matthew twenty-three. Jesus talks about the destruction of Jerusalem again Tuesday night. Joel, you can be there to help me uh, help p- explain partial preterism. yeah. All right. Um, <clears throat> So, so Matthew 23, Jesus is talking about all this stuff we take to be the end of the world, and really what he's talking about is the destruction of Jerusalem. Then Matthew 24, he tells, or, I'm sorry, Matthew, uh, Matthew 24, he tells that. Matthew 25, there's three parables. The first is the handmaidens and the, the candles, and you keep watch. You never know when it's going to happen. Then it's, hey, you've given these talents. What did you do with your talent? Well, I buried it in the ground. Well, I, you know, just doubled it. Well, I did a hundredfold. So Jesus is basically saying, in light of this coming judgment, in time, real judgment, the destruction of the world, the temple, the cosmos, was a symbol of the cosmos for Jews. Keep alert. Don't hide and protect yourself, but give what I've given you away. And here's how you give it away and how you receive it. This is what Jesus is talking about. How do you live between me going, me going back up into heaven and the destruction of Jerusalem. That's what this text is about. Anyway, verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left hand, you that are accursed. I like I like making accursed, no, accursed. Accursed, depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Notice. Notice the eternal fire isn't created or intended for people. It was prepared for who? Angels and demons. This is language of how the rival gods, we talked about this in beginnings, how the rival gods how God will finally triumph over them once and for all and do away with their rival rebellious rule in the world. The principalities and powers. The god's bad battle in Egypt. With the plagues, sometime we'll preach about that. It'll be awesome. The gods uh, that were battling in the Old Testament, and the creation stories, the gods that were battling in—we uh, see them show up in Genesis six, the flood. We see them show up in the taking of the Promised Land. We see them all. We see this motif all through Scripture. There's this entire substructure in the biblical thought here that God is in a cosmic battle with evil forces, and that that to resist. His love is ultimately to leave one unredeemed. Meaning, you are still imprisoned to these rival gods. So judgment is about revealing who your master has always been. It's not about, it's not about um, a punishment. It's not like a punishment that... um, that is given from the outside. It's about um, who's your master, you will go with them. And what's the test? Hear me on this, friends, over and over again. Over and over again. It's love. (laughs) Love is the test. Love demonstrates you belong to Christ. All right, what about this eternal fire and eternal punishment? Verse 46. Again, this will be mostly Tuesday night, but there's thoughts here about what does this mean, right? In Dante's Inferno and in John Milton's Paradise Lost, this meant like an eternally conscious torment that God took delight in, those those quotes I read. It meant like White Bear Justice Park, where we would look upon the sufferings of Victoria and not just sort of enjoy it and be entertained by it, but we'd turn to the person who runs the Justice Park (laughs) and say, you are more glorious because of it. That's not as eternal conscious torment. It's the kind of hell I grew up thinking was the only hell that existed. The only idea of hell. Um, there's also this, uh, we saw this in the Philippians passage. Notice the ungodly there. Um, their, their final destination, Paul says, is not unending torment, but it's Destruction. And this eternal punishment, eternal fire, some people translate it as people just cease to exist. Tuesday night, we'll talk about that more. So who does the punishing? Well, some say God does. This is the active, retributive, Victoria, you did this wrong thing and now you will suffer psychological torture forever. Some say that our sins punish us. We're not so much punished by, uh, for our sins, but by our sins. I think there's a lot of truth in that. I was talking to a friend yesterday, and she, uh, she was telling me, asked her how she was doing, and she said, I'm great. Um, I've been six months sober. I was like, wow. I didn't, I didn't, even, I didn't even know you, you weren't sober. So I started asking her, Why did you decide to do that? And she said, well, I just realized I was drinking like a bottle or two of wine a night. And I was... um, This person has diabetes too. And um, it was costing my body a lot. It was costing me a lot of money to sort of counteract what this was doing to my body. And she gets up every morning at 3 a.m. and goes for a run. And she's like, I was running hungover every day. And I just realized I, I can't be present to my kids or my husband if I continue to do this. So I decided to stop drinking and I said well, how's it been and she says it's great it's great I feel clear headed I'm not spending you know 60 bucks a week on bottles of wine I don't have to pump myself as full of insulin I'm more present to my kids right as she talks like she's telling me this this sort of sin of addiction like linking myself to this alcohol was punishing me right There's an intrinsic punishment in the sin. And if she persists in that, linking herself to sort of like the the God of her stomach, is what Paul says in Philippians, right? Then then God's uh, justice is to simply give her what she wants. To turn her over, to withdraw his presence from her choices. Because the sin carries with it its own punishment. Which he's telling me as I'm standing there. <laughs> right? So this is, this is where I'm at, friends. I don't... Again, Tuesday night. There's so much more to say about this. But um, the Eastern Orthodox have this picture of, of judgment that I think gives us, a, like it kind of opens a new path for us. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share this and then we'll respond in prayer. They talk about God's love as a red hot river of fire flowing from the throne of God. They get this from the book of Daniel. God's love purifies or punishes based upon how people respond to it. This is CS Lewis traffics in this understanding of judgment and hell and love in his book the great divorce if you haven't read it i highly recommend it he's he's creating an, an allegory parable based upon the eastern orthodox understanding of judgment so god's justice then is love god's justice is love our sin does the punishing and God's judgment is turning us over to the gods we've worshipped in this life and our, and our final telos is with them. Not because um, there's this, been this trial that we can't remember and we're stuck paying eternally for things we did for 40 years. But because our reception to God's love wasn't a participation in it. It was a resistance or a rejection of it. Now, whether that means we exist eternally, exist eternally, or whether that means that judgment is eternal, either we are eternally conscious or we are destroyed, we cease to exist, it's called conditional immortality. I don't know. We can talk more about that Tuesday night. Here's what I do know. Here's what I do know. I know that the only way I can conceive of being faithful today as it comes to the um, eternal consequences of our lives is to be something that's called a hopeful inclusionist. You ever heard that word? A hopeful inclusionist. Because I believe that God is a hopeful inclusionist. (laughs) And this is, what this, this is what this means. This means that I pray and hope everyone will be saved. I want what God wants. I preach good news. I name the wages of sin and death. I hold out God's love as a light that awakens hearts. Whatever hell is, whatever it looks like, I'm increasingly convinced that its doors are locked from the inside, not from out. And God will let as many people into heaven that can possibly stand it. Because the question about hell ultimately gets down to God's character. Who do we say God is? Is God more like the guy who runs the White Bear Justice Park? Or is he more like Jesus on the cross who prays, forgive them their sins? In a world where eternal punishment is preached to scare the hell out of people, today we declare that Jesus did not come to scare the hell out of us, but to love the heaven into us. God wants everyone to be saved by his love. Hell is simply one way to describe our experience of God's love if we resist or oppose it. His love is a red-hot river fire that will purify us or punish us depending upon our trust in God. Friends, where do you need to receive God's love today? Maybe you know you're resisting or opposing it somewhere and his love does not want to destroy you. It does not want to punish you. It's to purify and cleanse and free you today. Free you. Maybe there's somebody in your life that you're just death that like they're living towards destruction. Their life is one big testimony to like death is real. Like I know hell's real because of this person's life. Maybe you just want to call out to God to have mercy, have mercy on them, to be graceful towards them. That's how we want to respond today. There's a response in your booklet, friends, to help kind of bring, bring our prayers to God because God is, he knows our, he knows we want before we ask, so we just have to let our words be